Hey there, glad to have you back. This is episode 7 of Tales from the Subterranean Playground. As always, I'm your host, Mark Allen Jay. Today we're going to listen in on a conversation that I had with Steve Osborne. Steve owns and operates Oz's Music, as well as the music environment, which is a place where people who are interested in learning an instrument can come and actually play them and it's right next door to the store. While we'll touch on Oz's music, as well as the music environment, I think the bigger story here is how Steve became such an accomplished musician, but also how he has used those skills to enrich the lives of individuals with special needs. He's been teaching music for decades and has mastered a variety of instruments, including the rather unusual Chapman stick, so much so that it led to him teaching the instrument at the prestigious New England National Guitar Summer Workshop in Connecticut. We'll also hear how his training in the Montessori method informed his approach to teaching music to children. Long ago, Steve started a band called No Obstacles, the no portion of that beginning with a K, as in knowledge. It's also a nice take on the popular expression for a knockout, as in KO. The band exists to help people who are dealing with disabilities, from those on the spectrum to physical disabilities, in order to enhance the quality of their life through music. To say he's focused on making life better through music, while that may sound like a cliché, it really isn't, and honestly, it's a big understatement. Steve's a classical guitar virtuoso, and in his earlier years, he studied at Interlochen Academy. Later, he studied with Nelson Amos at Eastern Michigan University and has also performed for master classes with Michael Lorimer and Manuel Ramos. Long story short, there's a whole lot of talent, empathy, and compassion wrapped up in this one human being, and I'm happy to know him as well as to call him my friend. Let's listen in. Welcome to the Subterranean Playground. It's great having you here. Thank you for um, having me. And I'm glad you could make it because you were one of the targets that I wanted to have on the show for a long time. And a lot of that has to do with our collective past. The mm-hmm. fact that I've known you since our daughters were in, were in the same school. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going quite we're a ways back, back now considering yeah. they're both adults. Yeah, 23 years or right? something crazy right 24 maybe yeah and yeah. i and i always think back to those days because you were involved with the go like the wind concerts john was involved with the go like the wind concerts like any musical community people tend to know one another and they hang out they they gig together etc mm-hmm. but i didn't really understand that kind of whole connection and when i had john on the show he and i were kind of waxing nostalgic about those days you know way back when anyway but good to see that you've made the yeah, full recovery. On the other side. Yeah, you're still on this side, which is good. Um, <laughs> so we're gonna we're going to talk about Oz's music because we have to. We're going to talk about no obstacles because we have to. And we're going to talk about the music environment. We're going to do that. You know the connection between John and I? I don't. Okay. I found out he was a great drummer, and he started teaching drums in the back of the music environment. Okay. And as I was doing, taking on more and more at Go Like the Wind, I finally realized that I really didn't want to do anything with fourth graders on up. Right. <laughs> I love the preschool 
through third right. grade. That you was my your groove. Fill? Yeah. <laughs> and they call it class management, but even those good kids yeah. that go like the wind, it was crowd control. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and so so I thought, man, John would be perfect. So I I uh-huh. told John to go apply and he he just killed it. Yeah, he, he did. He he did great. He did. You know that and that whole episode uh now he's that got we his did masters in education. Yeah. You're a very talented musician. Certainly, I've, I've seen and heard your guitar work for quite some time. But I didn't know until recently that you had also attended Interlochen. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, is getting to Interlochen a little bit like getting to Carnegie Hall? You, <laughs> you just It wasn't for me. Is that right? Yeah, because I played classical guitar. Okay. And they had just started the program. So, I mean, I was... Good for a fifteen-year-old. I did. I, I went to Interlochen three times. Oh, two all-state programs, which is, it was sponsored by U of M at the time. Right out of high school, I did. I think it was eight weeks, and I got eight U of M credits for going to Interlochen. Oh, that was when Interlochen and U of M were connected. Oh, I didn't know that they were during the summer. Okay, but. Interlocking Academy is like winning the lottery, I think. I mean, you got to be real. And and the kids during the summer program, the kids that were there in the orchestra were from all over the world and just phenomenal. But their classical guitar program was fledgling, mm-hmm. and so they they weren't as picky, I think, with, with the classical uh-huh. guitars. Okay. But I, I wasn't bad. I was really full of myself. I had some classical tunes memorized, some Bach, some Villalobos. And I had some originals that I call like classical funk. It's kind of a mixture. Mm-hmm. And they auditioned me, or they, they had me play for them once I was up there. And I thought, I killed it. And they go, that's nice. Now put away all your music. We're starting you over. <laughs> and it was because of my technique. My right-hand technique was ridiculous. And I made it work to a degree, but I really had to reset my technique from my right hand and it was really good that it happened interesting when it did it would have been nice to happen earlier but But, uh but it was it was good enough (laughs) well what is it that took you to normally when you think of a guitar certainly my experience growing up and friends that i had the vast majority were interested in doing hardcore rock (laughs) <laughs> funk, blues, etc. Yeah. What was it about classical that really pulled you in that direction? You know, I had a hard time hearing differentiating when I was listening to music between a synthesizer and a distorted guitar. Mm. I, it just wasn't registering. And when I saw that there was a path of dots, written notes, I was a horrible reader, but I'd learn one note and then I'd learn another. <laughs> and by the time I got through it, I'd I'd played it so many times from the beginning, I'd have it memorized, which also kind of led to me not being a good reader because I'd memorize it. <laughs> but um, I had also, like, I was very proud of myself in 10th grade. I think it was 10th. I sat down with Mood for a Day. Indeed. On the album. And poke that needle to the, to the record 150, 200, 300 times <laughs> and figured out Mood for a Day wow. by ear. To me, that was like, wow, if I can do that. Wow. But um, it, t- it took me forever, but I... I Wait, that's Steve Howe, right? Yeah. That's from... Yeah, it's the one like... Fragile or... Uh, classical yes flamenco-ish kind of... Yeah. 
yeah. solo thing that they yeah. and there's two versions of it. Yes. But uh I always love that piece. And As there are the clap, there's actually two recordings oh, is that right? of the clap. <laughs> yeah. And I I can't remember. I digress. Anyway, please continue. I I guess partly because I knew there was a written path that I could follow and I I wasn't raised listening to classical music or anything. Um I'm not sure I just thought it was beautiful. I got a Segovia album early on, and when they heard Segovia play, they they called the classical guitar the little orchestra because he could do so much with six strings and yes. harmonies and such. So, were your are your folks uh, were they musically inclined or? When I think back at, at how the music environment developed, at one day it just dawned on me. Well, my mom was a Sunday school teacher at a quite. You know, a little rural Presbyterian church in Holloway, Michigan, in between. Wow, I don't even know where that is. and Adrian. In the middle of nowhere. Yeah, nowhere in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it was literally like a church and a fire station. Right. And, that, and there's your eight town. Eight to ten houses. Yeah. But yeah, she sang beautifully, and she'd take me to church, and I, I can just imagine her holding me on her shoulder and mm-hmm. screaming these, these melodies in my ear. And as a kid, I... I naturally started singing harmonies, uh-huh. um, which was kind of interesting. Then I protested until I got in the choir. They weren't letting kids in the choir until I, I pitched a bitch enough. But um, my point was, after this, for a kid, a pretty boring church service, sure. my mother would go out. She knew the kids were restless, so she'd take all the Sunday school kids and do movement and music. So she'd like deep and wide, deep and wide, you know. Wow. And th- I think that set an impression that music wasn't just to listen to and that you could, I don't know, participate in it. And, right. And uh, that along with, there's an interesting tie-in kind of to my nephew with Montessori and my music environment. Uh, my nephew, Joshua Osborne, my brother Tom's son, was two, and they said, oh, we enrolled Joshua in school, in Montessori school. So Joshua, as soon as he was born, I bought him a ukulele. I got a picture of him, like, with a ukulele, I think, on day one or something. I think I, I think I heard about this in the video. Maybe. Okay, so please, yeah. So, so yeah, so jo- every year Josh had a birthday, I'd, I'd start feeding him instruments. And, and so did my brother, who was a great musician, self trained but really great but when i heard he was in montessori school it was like what are you doing to my nephew he's so two years old this is ridiculous and as a protective uncle i go i want to see what they're doing to my nephew and i went and observed sister anthonita at siena heights college sister anthonita turns out was central to national montessori movement i mean she, oh, I didn't she, know that. she was huge and ran the uh the Montessori teacher training on the East Coast. And after I saw what was going, I, I observed through this mirrored window these little kids making decisions for themselves and interacting and not necessarily being, you know, marching to the step of the teacher every moment. I thought, this is way better than I thought it was. Right. You know, this this is kind of cool yeah. that they, they actually uh, give them give them some freedom mm-hmm. of choice and and to learn from the kids and, and their environment, not just the teacher. And uh, so kept feed, feeding them instruments, and uh, he, he ended up turn, 
getting his degree in in music education at U of M. And, and then I, I was reading up on Montessori, and I remember her saying, and I don't remember which book it was, she said, I think there should be more music in my classroom. She goes, I'm a scientist. She basically was admitting she dropped the ball when it came to music and her method. And oh. I thought, I got ideas for that. So I kind of called the music environment. I studied Montessori, went to Montessori teacher training instead of going to Manhattan School of Music and studying with Manuel Barueco in classical guitar. He's this I did not Cuban know this. master that I got a scholarship to go, but I didn't have the guts or the money to even live in New York, let alone uh, even even if the school was paid for it, just I didn't have have it in me. And I thought, well, I'll work, make enough money, and then I'll go to New York. And all, enough ulcers from the factory. And I, sure. after one year, I was the I was the final notch. My my dad and both brothers were factory rats, and oh wow, both my brothers were at the same Ford plant. Hmm. And I just said, I got to cut out. I don't regret it. I, I I would have been laid off two weeks later and had all these benefits for quite a while. But I went to Montessori teacher training in New England, not to become a Montessori teacher, but to get a philosophical base of working with kids so I could start what I call the music environment. Wow. And I got the word environment really from Montessori talking about prepared environment for children. You know, environment was kind of a catch, has been a catchword sure. for a long time too. So I, I probably should give a, for those that don't know what the music environment a lot of people come in with a set idea, but now I'm getting known as a place that you can find your instrument. The music environment, I allow people to come in, and I say, what do you want to play? And it's a room full of instruments. And it it evolved. Um, I don't know how much of the story I want to get into, but I remember in fifth grade, for me, picking a band instrument was... I got a minute on three different instruments and told, what, what instrument do you want to play the rest of your life? <laughs> and sadly... That's still the norm. And then you don't always get the instrument you pick because they have to have a balanced band. And no, I hadn't listened to all the different instruments. And it, was, it wasn't an educated choice. It was just a choice. And I wanted to give people more chance to have hands on, their in, hands on the instruments. So that's one of the aspects of the music environment. I have all the instruments of fifth graders going to have choices on. So the brass, the woodwinds, mm-hmm. the percussion and bowed strings and in an ideal world they they take each one home for a month with some instruction and, of course and have have a real but at least they're getting you know a few hours on some of these instruments before they're picking it instead of a few minutes mm-hmm. but then there's the rock element we have drums and pa and the room is not just used for teaching it's used for band rehearsals ross business school has used it for the last 10 years and they they this is the space adjacent the to music the store. environment yeah okay next to the store it's like two storefronts there's, yes there's other teaching rooms in both spaces but the music environment is is a good sized space it can fit 20 30 people in mm-hmm. there that was steve osborne talking about among other things the music environment I decided to schlep my binaural mannequin head microphone over to the music environment. Steve and some of his friends were having an impromptu jam session, and I thought it'd be nice to actually capture what it sounds like in that space. So, if you're using headphones or earbuds, it's going to sound very natural and very realistic. You'll hear the instruments placed in the imaginary sound field in front of you, just as they were in the room. 
Unfortunately, if you're listening to the speaker on your phone or you're listening to speakers elsewhere, much of that effect will be diminished. Nevertheless, when this wraps up, we'll return to the conversation. Oh, and one other thing. I haven't really done much to this recording at all. The rest of the podcast is level compressed, which means we try to make everything pretty much the same loudness level. But I didn't really want to destroy the dynamics of the music. So as a consequence, you may need to adjust the volume level up or down relative to where you had it set for the conversation. And after this short musical interlude, we'll return back to the conversation. Here we go. Let's return now to our regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. It's also used f- by several other bands that, that run it out in the evening when I'm not, not teaching in there. And we've done some performances. I used to, I, for 30 years, I did kids open mic, open any kid in the community until COVID hit. And I also had a strum and drum, which was for families to bring their little ones and strum and drum <laughs> indeed but and, you've uh, been but you've been teaching for at least 79 79 is when you I started, started the music environment in 79 I went to Montessori teacher training came back and started the music environment well hold on when, so when did when did Oz, Oz's music become 1990 huh I'll try to fill in the gaps yeah. so from 1979 to at least 1990 I started the music environment on Nordman Street, mm-hmm. I I really wanted to get a more professional space to teach out of, but at the time I was just trying to develop a, a clientele, so I I thought well I'm going to hit two different angles I'm going to hit guitar students that could be kids young adults or older adults you know any age, and then I want my music environment to be really focused on like the the three to twelve year old okay, and multi instrument approach. So I'm out flyering in the middle of the night, and I go to post something, and there's a, a flyer that says, School Metaphysics, Learn How to Visualize. And I thought, and it was free, and i like, I like free. And, <laughs> and, and visualization, my mom pretty much raised me on like positive, Norman Vincent Peale kind of yes. positive thinking. Power of positive yeah. thinking. Yeah, and, and uh, prayer. Uh-huh. And I thought, you know, there's a fine line between positive thinking, prayer, and meditation. Kind of in the same soup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, 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 yeah. It's free. I'll go. So I like to say they didn't visualize too many people being there. I was the only person to show up. <laughs> and and uh, it was upstairs on Main Street near the Broken Egg. And uh, after this meeting, I said, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit in ohm for hours with cross legs. Right. But I'm gonna try to think for a half minute to a minute a day. What, what do I want to be doing? And, but then I was also kind of like reality was like I rarely gigged. I wanted to gig. I wanted more students. I thought, and even get me around a music store or a recording studio. Mm-hmm. You just get me in those circles. Right. Not very long went by." You may remember Edens on Maynard, maybe not. 
Uh, Joni Mitchell actually played there way back. Wow. It was so. I was eating there, and I overhear a, a person talking behind me about a recording studio that they're moving in there, and he's a teacher, and he might be looking for other teachers. It's like, dang, this this is interesting. Well, you're in the right place at the right time, right. aren't you, Steve? Yeah, and <laughs> and so I, on my way out, I said, you know, sorry to eavesdrop, but this sounds interesting. What you know, tell me more, and we exchanged numbers, and this is like maybe a month after the whole meeting at School of Metaphysics. He calls me and goes, I found a place. You know, if, if you're thinking about moving to your music environment, come on and check it out. And I go, great. Where is it? He goes, well, Main Street. We get to Main Street by the Broken Egg, start walking up the stairs. I go, Howard, this is the school of metaphysics. He goes, oh, no, they moved out. My teaching no. room for the next eight years was the room that school of metaphysics, learn how to meditate or learn how to visualize meeting was held. My music environment was in that room for the next eight years. He had a recording studio. We started a store on a box of strings, some picks, and a consigned guitar. We, we called it a store and grew from there. It was called Crescent Music, and that was early 80s. Wow. And it was very organic. I mean, it was it was where I learned a lot of my networking skills. And uh, Matthew Mishkoff mm-hmm. had a Matthew uh, Mishkoff violin and guitar, classical guitar. It was like high-end little shop. A guy named Larry Manderville, great pianist, had electronic repair shop there. There was a band that rented a space for rehearsals. There was a luthier that rented a space to build guitars. So it was this, basically it was a music co-op. And we started getting more teachers and getting more consignments coming in. And it grew into a thing. I love the, the fact that as you go up the stairs... <laughs> I was confused. It's like, dude, this is the school of metaphysics. Not anymore. <laughs> it's like, what, whatever that is, I want more of that. I think you missed one opportunity, but, though, because when he said, <laughs> when he said, you know, they moved out, you, this is where you had the opportunity to say, they should have seen that coming. <laughs> they should have visualized. <laughs> but Oh, but, that, uh, that's that's just that's just and kind of sadly ever since then i've been afraid to visualize <laughs> it's like holy shit what you better want what you wish for here what what, you better, what is you that? better use your superpowers for good because <laughs> <laughs> clearly they exist <laughs> Yeah, and, whatever you know, you that was. Be careful with that. That's that's that's. I, I still get weird chills when I tell that story. It's like you should. What was that? That's just that's like you know people talk about like the phrase "happy accidents" or like yeah. like when I was speaking with John, and uh, I I can't remember what it was specifically, but I said I said to him, "Well, it's, you know, you can think of it." I was waxing about something. I said, "You can think of this as like a cosmic convergence," and John looked at me and he said. Are you messing with me? And I said, Is that the name of a group or something? It's the name of their album <laughs> from the Karma Quartet, right? You know, he and Mad Cat. And, That's great. Right? And I, and I was like, I was just, I pulled it out of the air. I was just Wild. like, you know, it's like, you know. You know, in all fairness, one would think that those from the School of Metaphysics would have, in fact, visualized the lack of business there, forcing them to relocate, and without which Steve couldn't have started his first music shop. Or maybe they did see it coming and they knew that they needed to clear out of the space to make room for Steve's musical odyssey to continue along its intended path. Well, maybe. 
Anyway, in this next segment, Steve discusses how he's adapted codified teaching methods, such as the Suzuki method, to suit his own particular teaching style and method, part of which he refers to as his create-and-imitate approach, which falls under what he sees as instructional breathing. We'll also hear about Steve's observations on rhythm and pitch, And this is based on his years of instruction given to many music students, as well as how his years of providing lessons to very young students has informed his teaching methods to those with developmental issues. We also discuss elements of the video, I'm with the Band, the No Obstacles story. It's a short-form documentary-style video about Steve's work with the No Obstacles Band. The video was written and produced by Allison Doxey, one of Steve's nieces who recently began producing video content. Let's return. It's been fun. I've come up with lots of games and ideas. I also borrowed ideas from Suzuki early on. He was revolutionary in the 60s. Where I felt a strict interpretation of Suzuki failed was it was almost like brainwashing. They they would a lot of times they'll start in the crib with playing violin music, the same violin, violin music over and over and over, but it's a good way to get it in the head, mm-hmm. and then they'd start imitating it. And so, But they really stressed imitation, and I try to balance that with, I call it create and imitate. That's a version of what I call instructional breathing. I had a very young student, I was tr- like three, trying to teach. Suzuki rarely presents a note for quite a while, but I say if it's fun and the kids can enjoy it, there's no reason why you can't start showing them the relationship between notes and of course what's written. I was getting nowhere with this kid, and so then I just said, all right, pick any note you want, and they picked a note, and I wrote it down. I go, now, now play another note, <laughs> and and I wrote it down, and I'll play both of them together. So they, it was it was coming from them. It wasn't coming at them. And, Their uh, direction, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I've seen kids that almost quit, but we start getting into some improvisation and or some fun composing games mm-hmm. and the fire's light, as well as the, the social aspect, if you can get them playing with friends. or mm-hmm. That kind of, in a way, I, I really pride myself on making things very simple for people when I, when I feel like that's necessary. And all all that Montessori teaching preschool and and all those one-to-one lessons that I've given since 1979, mostly to beginners, really helped prepare me for working with people with cognitive issues. A lot of the same things apply. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things, I'm probably not singing it in the right key because I don't have perfect pitch, is... uh, well, there's an A chord here and an A chord there, A chord everywhere, till the D. Going back to A. Well, it's easy to D back to A. If you learn those words, you know the 12-bar blues. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And, and one you, of the if most... If you just play the root notes, you're playing along. Right. You know? And well. let us not forget just how celebrated and omnipresent are the 12-bar blues. Well, they then I go, everywhere. Then I start singing Hound Dog over it. There you go. <laughs> Same song. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I made that song for No Obstacles, my special needs group. I think I saw that. I think yeah. I did. In the in the I'm with the band, oh, Allison. My, Allison did a great yeah. job. That's my niece. Allison Doxy. 
She's spectacular. It was she, a great little video. I was she's really good. Yeah, she, she's hopefully she can get more work in that field because she's really really good at it. But I was really touched by that. I mean, yeah, the story um, where they cut to one of the kids' fathers and he talked about what a transformation, or the the mother that you spoke of, where she came to one of the the performances and for the first time heard her son sing. Yeah, how beautiful yeah how important for a parent uh, of a child who's got disabilities to suddenly show this talent i think it's wonderful it really is you know it's it's uh something that keeps giving i mm-hmm. get i get a lot out of it we actually backed up the rfd boys at the arc a year before covid and we doubled their attendance. We didn't get paid. We just did it because yeah. we wanted to do it. And we had 14 people on stage. Wow. And you think it would sound like cacophony. Huh? But somehow, I mean, we can sound like crap and people love us yeah. because they see the sure. the joy up there. and You have to celebrate and participation. Yeah. yeah. And, and it doesn't have to sound good to be a wonderful thing. Exactly. We actually sounded pretty good that yeah. night. And some of these people have superpowers themselves. No Obstacles has year-round rehearsals, and and then we do a, a camp one or two during the summer. But I consider everybody on the spectrum of in some way. Mm-hmm. I think you know, I never got diagnosed, but I'm sure I would have been diagnosed with something. <laughs> and uh, I, I really like trying to blend different abilities. And so after about 15 years of working with mostly autism, but everybody's welcome, neurotypical or quote-unquote normal or not um about more than half the people i met with perfect pitch were on the spectrum interesting that was like whoa that's kind of kind of odd what's the deal there and i thought back i think i've met about 16 or so people with perfect pitch and i think eight or nine of them were on the spectrum and a lot of them had speech development problems they could imitate but they weren't connecting the dots and making their own sentences and stuff until later. So I Googled perfect pitch and special needs, and a book came up called Perfect Pitch and the Key of Autism. Wow. And I called the author and talked to her, and she was very generous with her time. She said, we think 1% of the nation has perfect pitch. And out of that 1%, we think 60% are on the spectrum. (laughs) And that's exactly what I had observed. It's like, holy crap. You're totally, I think I'm totally representative. Yeah. <laughs> the stats are right there. Yeah, it was like, whoa, this is interesting. And one of, one of my clients not only has perfect pitch, I was listening to an Eminem tune with her, and I don't even know why I said it. I said, I wonder what tempo this is. She goes, 84. Before I could finish the sentence, basically, it wasn't like she sat 84 there. 84 BPM. She yeah, knew. it wasn't like she sat there and go, okay, now this is a second, so this would be 60, and it's 84. No, it was 84. It's like, yeah, that wall's white, that note's C sharp, and that's 84 beats a minute. Wow. And I checked the metronome, it was 84 beats. And was, I've never heard a perfect tempo. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't either <laughs> until I discovered. I'm guessing here, but probably the same part of the brain that can do both in certain people. Wow. I'm really surprised. I was not expecting you to relate a tale like this today. So I'm <laughs> yeah, that, it was fa- I mean, they have not scraped the surface of music therapy. Yeah. Another story I like to tell is my classical guitar mentor was Matthew Mishikoff. 
His father was world-famous violinist Misha Mishkov. Oh. Played at Detroit Symphony Headmaster for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Before that, this is, goes way back into the 40s, in the glory days of CBS Orchestra and NBC yeah. Orchestra. He was always first chair with, was it Toscanini? Yeah. Conducting, right? Arturo. And, but his son wanted to become a musician, but also was trying to be realistic, became a dentist. And, but he bought and sold high-end classical guitars, and he was, he was a very accomplished classical guitarist. Well, he got early-onset Alzheimer's in his early 60s. Wow. And we did a gig at an old folks' home. It was his last gig ever. And not too long after that, they called, called me and said, you know, he can't change his strings anymore. And uh, it was a sad day when I had to go change my mentor's strings for him. Mm-hmm. Well, he ended up getting put in Gilbert House in Ypsilanti. They have memory care and they have regular care for, for elderly. And, uh, well, I had heard that he lost his ability to play guitar completely, but he could still play violin. For people that know Alzheimer's, this is a, a common fact. You remember your, your early memories. He was taught violin before he was taught guitar. Yes. So he could play violin way after he lost his guitar abilities. And that fascinated me and helped confirm that I was on the right path getting kids into music as soon as they're interested. Right. Because those memories, even if they get Alzheimer's, right. are going to be with them for, for quite a while. And uh, he died in at Gilbert House. And in his honor, I decided I'd do 10 hours of volunteer work there. And the second time I went, I thought, well, what am I going to do with these folks? And I thought, well, everybody can shake a shaker. So one of the activities was twist and shout by the Beatles, shake it up, baby, and just have them shake the shakers. The first lady I went up to, I offered the maracas, and I was right in her face, a foot away from her face, and it was like she was staring right through me. I was not in the room, and I was right in front of her, and I got nothing from her. But she didn't say no when I said, you want to play maracas? And her hands were kind of like cupped. And I thought, well, I could fit that maraca in there. <laughs> so, so I stuck the maracas in her, in her little clenched hands, turned on Twist and Shut by the Beatles, looked over, and she's smiling and dancing in her chair and shaking those things. Fantastic. And uh, one of my goals was to try to talk to family members, find out what these individuals' favorite music was in their younger days, mm-hmm. and bring they get ripped away from their identity a lot of times and their record collection yeah. and everything. Sure. And the same time I'm thinking this this up, I discover the documentary Alive Inside. Which I've not seen. It's a must-see. I don't care if you have family with Alzheimer's or not. It's fascinating. And this guy was going around to memory care units, putting their music on little iPods, giving them their music back. They showed one old jazz musician just talking gibberish in the, in the home. And then they put headphones on him and played him one of his old songs. He started singing along. They took out the headphones, and he was back for a short bit. He could hold a conversation. It's like he became s- lucid for... For a short bit. Yeah. But it was it was the music that brought him back. So yeah. I mean, they don't... They they have not scraped the surface. Right. Uh, another Another scene in that movie is a lady that hadn't been away from her walker for two years, and they put on one of her favorite old tunes. She pushes the walker away, starts dancing. Ah. <laughs> no, that's just, that's just beautiful. Yeah, I, I mean, that is. I, it's, it's, I think, I mean, I'm not a music therapist, but 
I have a better name for myself. I call myself a music enrichment specialist. Right. And I enrich myself and others through music. And they enrich me by, by participating. So it's, it's not like, I, I mean, I really respect music therapy degrees and people that have gone through all, like Jesse's done his yes. homework. Yes, And And I've been just kind of living and breathing for 30 years now and intuitively kind of doing what I can with a fair amount of success. Yes. One of my, one of my favorite stories, and braggadocious, but uh, one of my favorite clients, she's got cerebral palsy, and uh, she's got perfect pitch. And she went to play the piano, and, it's, and her hands are all, like, messed up, right? And she's poking at these notes, but she's poking the right ones. Like, you know, it's like she she has the she ears. Knows. She knows. She, she, she just doesn't have the Yeah, the she doesn't have the dexterity. And, digits, yeah. and so I, I try to take a multiple, multi-prong approach. Get her on the drums. Get all four limbs going. Yes. Right, left, right, left. So they get all four limbs going, and it's a two-beat, which works with 80 percent of all music so so they're 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 rocking right away right on but anyway i also started getting her doing more small motor stuff on the piano and it's to the point now where she can play five notes in a row with five fingers which is huge for her sure it is it's and her mother made me feel like a million dollars she goes You've done more for her physical therapy in one year with music than her physical therapist did over the last 10 years. That's got to be incredibly like, rewarding. Hell yeah. <laughs> Doing something right. 60 Minutes did a great interview once. They took a, a musician. They put him in, I think it's an MRI machine. They laid him so he could look at a mirror and, and play a keyboard while he's laying on his back. If he was playing a song he already knew... Or if he was playing, if he was reading music, it lit up a lot of parts of the brain. If he improvised, it was like a huge light bulb, just pew, like there were so many synapses going. And they're both very valuable, but it was, it was fascinating to see the difference between the creative brain and the brain that's just following an old path. Yes, it, it's still lit up. Yeah, it, I was quoted in the Ann Arbor Observer many years ago. It kind of made me sound like a lunatic, but I still hold to it. <laughs> Music to the brain is like garlic is to the body. There you go. It permeates the whole body. It's not just an ear thing. I love the idea of permeability, as it were, because this is functioning as a form of medication. That's how I see it. The stuff that you're doing yeah. and the fact that you know you have the music environment, so it's a safe place. It's a known place. You're guaranteed to have that kind of interaction, but also guaranteed to have some improvisation. Correct? There, are, there. Are, do you do you do highly structured things at first? Do you do improvisation with them? How do you typically work it, that? It depends on who walks in the door and where their interests fall, and okay. kind of my mood at the time too. Okay. You, know? you uh, I, I want to talk about the the um, the summer camps. And I wanted to talk about that because I know Ken's involved with that. Yeah. And Ken was on this uh, podcast, and I, I really wanted to feature him because I thought the, the things that he had done with Horns for the Holidays was mm-hmm. such a great story. I love telling that story. Yeah, and 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 what ended up happening with the DSO, you heard about like how they now have this whole program. Yeah, I, hadn't, I didn't know that until I listened to your podcast. That blew me that away. So I was cool. like, 
Yeah, right? It's like you take something that is fundamentally good mm-hmm. and you put that force in action, right? You get it moving. And the next thing you know, someone at the DSO is saying, we'll help get these instruments out to the underprivileged kids, right? I think he's in the documentary that Allison made, right? I think he appears briefly. Probably because I think she took some clips from the camp, and he he really is co-director. He, so what is, can we talk about Ken's role in that as yeah. well? I know you guys are a drop spot. Sorry to interrupt, but I know you're a drop spot for the Horns for the Holidays program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you and Ken end up getting together on the No Obstacles, which, by the way, also KO, I like that, the knockout. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so how did, how did that, how did you guys get together? You know, it's been so long, I'm not sure... He's got a heart, you know, the size of New York. It's, he does. It's it's unbelievable. He's also got tons of energy. I mean, creative plus. He's a, he's a monster on so many instruments. Yeah. And but then he teach he can teach like classical trumpet. He gets really good results. Uh, he's he's a master improviser on, on several instruments. But um. I think I just asked him, could you help with a camp? And he, he jumped in Had you in met him in the first. store? Is that where? What's that? Had you met him in the, at Oz's? Yeah, he, or? yeah, I think at the time he, he was already starting to teach at Oz's. And they're, they're all contract labor. There. So Ken was just basically, he was, he was one, of the, one of the providers, let's call him. Yeah, right? independent contract teachers, whatever, yep. And uh, he's always helped a lot with the camps. But he's, he doesn't do a lot during the, the year as far as working with the bands, the band rehearsals, but he's, like, all in about making these camps happen. He's been really good at helping shape the vibe of the camp. He was always like, let's not have a set agenda because we don't know what it's going to be like. It's always different depending on who shows up. Right. We purposely keep it loose at first so that mm-hmm. we can kind of e- evolve it. And it always turns out to have a great concert at the end of the week. You know? Sometimes it's nice not having a set structure. And I, and I understand that like in any kind of music instruction, there are rudiments and things that have to be learned, that have to be assimilated. Can you maybe explain, can you walk us through like a typical day, how you might start a day yeah. in a summer camp? Many times we'll start with just a drum circle. That can take many different forms, giving everybody a chance to lead and everybody copy. Just, I mean, just keeping a steady beat is a challenge for for several of these folks. Sure. Uh, depend depending. Then we have some breakout breakout rooms where we may work on some of the tunes for the uh, final concert. Sometimes it requires taking one, you know, like a couple couple kids out of the whole picture and or young adults and doing a one to one session with them because it's the right thing to do at the moment. Right. And uh, the past several years, we've had Christina Etter Sears, who Ken brought into the mix, and she's she did uh, I think I think it was People Dancing for many many years, a group in town. Great, great creative soul and, and a movement. The young adults that were attending the camp, the ones that I expected would just be sitting out during her time, a lot of times they'd be the most involved. I don't know how she does it, but but she gets gets them up hmm. dancing, and we usually incorporate a couple dance routines in the uh, final concert. Hmm. And this is kind of digression, but as far as steady beat, 
some of the most success I've had was um, something I call music ball. There's a couple different versions, but one is putting a bigger hand drum in between us, and I bounce it on the drum, and it bounces to you. You catch it, and then you bounce it back to me. But we try to bounce it on the one of every four. So okay. it's like one, two, three, four, or one. So the drum is hitting on the one. Right. And it's really helped some some of these meter challenged. I don't know what. what to, uh, rhythmically, yeah. Rhythmically, rhythmically challenged. Yeah. yeah. And Ken's been working with several individuals from the no obstacle folks, uh, on mostly on drums. But at one point, I said uh, with one client, I go, I wonder if he has like an optimum tempo. Maybe we're just not playing at his tempo. And I found this with a, with a couple other clients. Like there's a range where they can keep steady and uh, and struggle outside of that range. Yeah, yeah. I th- so there's this internal pulse. Or something that's going wow. on. I don't quite understand that. But. That that surprises me because I would have thought that to be a global thing, right? If you can't keep time, yeah, you can't keep time. Period. Right. This brings up another thing I wanted to uh, kind of mention. For a while, I was I was working with a device called Interactive Metronome. This is a fascinating story to me. It was developed locally. When Bob Seger first got in the recording studio, I mean, they were, they were a great band, but they weren't used to playing to a tick track. And when the, the sound engineer laid a tick track down for them and tried to do overdubs, it was, like, horrendous. And it was like, oh, my God, this is not going to work. So that engineer created some kind of software that helps people keep a steady beat. And what it does is the version I had was there's a button that you can you can strap on and like do clapping with it, hitting that button, or you can tap it, or it could be a floor thing. And there's many variations adapted for sports now that like you can take a baseball bat and hit the pad. And they usually will play a beat at a resting heart rate of an athlete, like 55 beats a minute or 60. And you click the button, and if you're early, you hear a sound in your left ear. If you're late, you hear a sound in your right. There's also a visual. There's five squares. If you get the center green one, you're within 20 milliseconds of the beat. If you get a a light on the left side of that, you're early. And then there's a really out. And there's three different sounds. There's like, yeah, you hit that green, and you hear it in both ears. Or you're early, and you hear a, a sound in your right or left, or you're late, you hear it in your right. And then there's this rubber band sound if you're way off. It's like, blah, 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 right? So it's like, so you're getting this audio feedback every time you try to keep a beat. I've never heard of such a thing. It's sad because it's so expensive. But there's been so much research that, got, that went into this that they can ask these ridiculous prices it's actually used by a lot of child therapists now it can be used for a whole bunch of different stuff uh it's used for stroke victims to learn how to walk it's something about the left right brain lining up i don't understand it but there's there's this whole thing about crossing the center line for people with some brain issues interesting and and it's finding that center line that trying to line up both halves i think but uh it's, it's also been researched by the Department of Defense for brain injuries from battle. But early on, the guy, I guess, took it over to a friend that had a kid with a disability, and somehow it helped them. And uh, so I, I've, I had the device 
for a while, but you, it's ridiculously expensive. And then you got to pay for minutes. Like you only get so many minutes, and then you got to keep paying for. <laughs> but I did it, and the next day I drew straight lines like I never drew straight lines <laughs> in my life. I don't, I don't know if it's related, but there was there was something balancing about doing this, lining up the beat and making sure you're on. Uh, you, you think, and I, I've hooked up really great musicians to it, and I've hooked up four really good drummers. The only one that did really good was a U of M professor that was used to following a conductor or a metronome. But the band guys that are the metronome when they're playing and everybody follows them, they were good, but they mm-hmm. weren't as good as the guy that's used to following a conductor or a sure. or a, or a metronome. I've been fascinated with. Uh, there's times where I'll close my eyes, and what do you see when you close your eyes? This has nothing to do with whatever we're talking about. No. But it's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's a bunch of multicolored dots. Yep. And in the in the dark, a lot of times I'll, I'll think, all right, green, and those dot. A lot of those dots become green, and I can change colors. It's or you not, can change brightness even in a dark room. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've had this. I've had. I've experienced the same thing. For a while there, I was trying to do shapes, and and sometimes it would work, where I could I could like conjure a, sh- a visual of a It'd shape. It'd be really good if you could if you could like work that into doing shadow puppets, right? <laughs> if, you could, <laughs> if you could master that, you could have like you know you have like Abraham Lincoln over here, you know, and uh, Rutherford B. Hayes over here, you know. I, they're not really contemporaries, whatever, but they're both presidents, right? So they're the same. I don't know. I'm just talking out my ass, but um, I, 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 there's something else I wanted to ask you about yeah. because there's back in the '80s. I remember hearing about it, the Chapman stick. Yeah. Okay. How I got into stick? Maybe I'll let's do that. Do that. My friend Tim Twist, who has Milford Music. Yeah, Twist and, and more. They did a record. They, they, there was a record they did a long time ago. Yeah. So yeah, Kat, Kathy Moore wrote words to about two or three of my stick tunes no way yeah but it was a super cool group i mean everybody in it all wrote tunes so it was a really nice collaborative <laughs> everybody had had something to throw in the soup it was it was very cool right on it was it was, it was a good creative that's as close to a real group i ever was in outside of no obstacles is that right yeah i've so Tim had heard that I I was into classical guitar and wanted to learn some classical guitar. He was two years ahead of me. Uh, he decided that he wanted to learn some classical guitar from me, and we were going to do a performance at the high school talent show. He brought over a guitar player issue that introduced the, the Chapman stick to the world, basically, 1976. That's the year. That's the year, yeah. And... So Tim introduced me, and we both said at the time, oh, my God, how cool is that? An instrument you tap instead of pluck or strum or bow, and it goes as high as an electric guitar and as low as a five-string bass, and it's stereo output. I mean, how cool is that? (laughs) And uh, several years go by, and I got the beginning of Crescent Music, and he calls me up and says, hey, can you get a stick? And I said, well, I'll check. And I called Chapman's, and they go, well, you got to buy two to become a dealer. 
And I go, okay. And like the next day, a stranger walks in the store and goes, you got any, got any Chapman sticks? It's like, what's the chances? Right. It's a little, so bit, like my... the, it's a little bit like the self-actualization <laughs> space, the mystical space, right? Yeah. Turned out I became a stick dealer and still technically am, uh, even though it's more of an honorary position. Can you can you describe the general layout of a Chapman stick? What is it like? What is it not like? Okay. Uh, technically, they call it the Chapman stick touchboard. Basically, a fat guitar neck with, depending on the model, I play a grand stick, so I, I have six bass strings and six treble strings. But the bass is really, really low to a high mid-range, and the treble is a mid-range to a, a real high. It's, it's kind of bizarre because the low notes are in the middle and go out from there. It goes up in fifths on the bass side and up in fourths on, on the treble side. Wow. But it's it can be played very pianistic. Uh, you just you're just tapping your finger against the string, hit, hitting the string to the fret, and it, very low tension string. So it's it's really easy to tap a note, one finger, one note. So you can play. You can play a bass line and add a chord with the right hand, or you can play a chord with the left hand and a melody with the right hand. It's it's very versatile, five-plus five octaves. Right on. Well, yeah. you're going to have an editing nightmare Oh, here. I got enough, but I, I did want to formally thank you for coming down today. I've been actually been trying to get you down here for months, Yeah. and and now I feel as though... I've connected some of the, ma- the major dots in the, uh, what do they call it, murderer's row of local musicians. <laughs> so thanks so much for coming. And also thanks so much for talking about No Obstacles. I, I really want to thank you because I think it's genuinely positive work. And it's using what I think we both agree, music, one of the most essential and fundamental things about being human to improve the human condition. And I'm not saying that to gild any lilies here. I honestly yeah. believe when you benefit other humans, you benefit yourself. You yeah, really it's, do. It's definitely the most rewarding work I do. I, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of cool things, but nothing compares to yeah. working with this population. Well, right on. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you for having yeah. me. Oh. appreciate it. I really hope that you enjoyed that. For now, it's time to pull the faders down and say goodbye from the subterranean playground. As always, I'm your host, Mark Allen J. And we'll see you in a few weeks with Episode 8. Peace. Tales from the Subterranean Playground was produced and brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC.